welcome back to Seafort. This is MCS 575 week 4. If you're an MCS 343 student, you don't need to listen to this podcast unless you are particularly interested in privacy and anonymity online. This is the theme of this week's chapter. As a, um, this week's, uh, yes, chapter as in terms of what we read from S, but also the readings from David Lyon and Van Der Hoven. I'm going to go through my notes in a minute, but as a brief review, last week we talked about philosophy of technology. The week before, we offered some basic uh, philosophical frameworks for thinking about ethics, uh, particularly uh, the West, uh, some uh, non-Western ethics, but I always have more readings if you want to get into Ubuntu or Hisma. Um, Now we're going to get into how these frameworks apply to specific instances in the social use of technologies and the culture of digital media. So privacy and anonymity online. Is there any? As per the reading, uh, the author S points out that email contains a great amount of identifying information. Uh, so when we send an email, when we receive an email, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of identifying information that kind of can be tracked back to us. EU service, our European Union services are subject to stricter data protection laws, and privacy is not just about protecting sensitive information. Uh, what we want to protect is the personal information of those within our intimate sphere. So um, what does that mean? What, like when we have relationships, when we're sending emails, when we're sharing different uh, data with others, we don't want to just protect ourselves, but we want to protect people uh, who are part of our relations, right? What's important to protect is not simply individual privacy, but our private life as made up by close relationships. Strong cultural differences on exist on how we understand and value privacy. So it really means a lot depending on what context and what situation we're talking about. If we look at the privacy policies of email services we use, are there any surprises? Uh, is there a justification for the use of uh, info about you or the use of user info uh, allowed under the privacy? So this is an optional kind of thing that you can go into if you're interested, but as a real question, a privacy can be a matter of culture, and what aspects of your identity would you be okay with on a national ID card? I talked about this a little bit last week, where a national ID card is kind of a wearable technology, and think about what's on that ID card. And the book also talks about what kind of information is on the ID card, depending on where you're at. Uh, where do you draw the line at what's permissible on there, and why? So there are generalizations about others and culture here. Uh, others uh, Generalizations can be helpful in characterizing others, but they shouldn't be simplified into stereotypes. We're all shaped by all kinds of intersectional forces, and we take generalizations as starting points. So this is something that S is really keen on. Um, in the global metropolis, privacy uh, has us uh, considering some initial issues. First of all, there's this sense that a person is their information. Uh, this is also in line with Hale's condition of virtuality and datification. Uh, so if you look up and Catherine Hale, she has a book called, or a book chapter, I think it is, called The Condition of Virtuality, and talks about how we are all interpenetrated by informational patterns and this idea that you know data kind of helps constitute us and we can be constituted by data. Uh, this is part of datification, which is this recent trend in uh, media and in uh, digital media, especially. Information that defines our sense of identity in a digital age is often thought of as private, but there are all sorts of threats from corporate uh, threats to hacking, terrorism, state surveillance. Uh, 
there's also the issue of privacy and public uh, pub, private versus public life. Uh, the book S's work uh, talks about publicity, uh, publicity, publicity. I think that's how you say it, publicity. The blurring of public and private boundaries, and this is something that if you look into the history of privacy, uh, I have two pretty good books on this: History of Privacy by I think it's David Vincent, and Ego is the Known Citizen. There's this real uh, hard, uh, fuzzy, not hard, really fuzzy line between what is private, what is public, and how there are these uh, spaces for that to happen. Um, not being very clear here. Shifts, here's a quote from the reading here. It says, Shifts in our sensibilities surrounding earlier notions of privacy and intimacy may have to do with our efforts to retake control over our personal lives because we're aware of how much we are the targets of state and corporate surveillance. Privacy is an essential condition for creating ourselves. Autonomy is not necessary, uh, is not only a necessary condition for our being suited to living and acting in a democratic society. Most fundamentally, only such autonomous selves can justify the existence of democratic societies. So by contrast, the mobile phone and GPS stuff makes our uh, makes publicity, publicity our default setting. Connection is a default setting, right? And so we have this issue of, of what Aristotle writes about, too, where... Uh, you know, it's necessary for us to retreat from others, to move away from public conditions in order to cultivate an inner private self, which can be virtuous, which can be ethical. But that's really hard to do in today's environment. Um, so privacy and uh, uh, private life. Uh, what do we mean by private? Uh, there are differences. Oh, in the West, we usually think of the right to be let alone in the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the idea of, the, of privacy in the West kind of, well, in the United States, comes with Warren Brandis's 1890 decision, uh, which defines privacy as the right to be let alone. And then in Norwegian and Danish contexts, you have private life, which involves the inter intimate sphere of close relationships versus Ubuntu and Chinese philosophy. It's very relational, and privacy is completely different. So... Uh, if you read through these conceptions, we have very different notions of what privacy and uh, private life really means or how it's appropriate or not. Uh, there are more cultural differences, transformation and overconvergence. So shifts that we're starting to see in Western societies move towards publicity and the private, uh, publicly private, privately public uh, suggests a correlative shift between our um, in our underlying assumptions regarding selfhood and identi uh, identity. So according to the book, recent Westerners are becoming more like older Easterners, and recent Easterners are becoming more like older and older Westerners. Ooh, if you get what I'm saying there. The resulting pattern suggests a strong convergence towards two basic conceptions of selfhood, as individual and relational, privacy as individual but also group, and perhaps the laws defining privacy and protections. So the next point in uh, close to the end here is uh, privacy and private life. There are cultural differences in ethical pluralism. There's a talk about ethical pluralism and the relationship between uh, Thai, the Thai emphasis on familial privacy versus U.S.'s individual privacy. So then it wraps up by talking about new selves and new privacy. So there's three kinds of privacy here, right? The right to be let alone kind of privacy 
decisional privacy, which is freedom from interference in your personal plans and decisions, and then informational privacy, the control over what gets to be personal, what gets to be personal information. The notions of the self and how it relates to the public, and here the authors drive, uh, uh, direct, sorry, the author is uh, using Simmel and Irving Goffman. Uh, so with Simmel, you have this idea of a sociable self who's attuned to the norms and practices within the network of affiliation, somebody who is relational, really. And Goffman is even more so where the conception of self is defined by multiple social roles and relationships, centrally engaged with impression management, his backstage, front stage thinking. So again, the emphasis is on the growing relational self and the idea of the self as being something that is uh, uh, increasingly um, interpersonal, increasingly social, and less so private and individual and atomized. So I'm going to get into the David Lyons reading here, uh, which I think is probably one of the best of these three. Um, no, I'll share. I'll, I'll save the David Lyons reading. Uh, first, I want to get through Van Der Hoven. Uh, the main takeaway from Van Der Hoven is that there are these, um, well, four moral reasons for the protection of personal data. Uh, but it goes into this argument about which I'm sure all of us will find compelling about how data about persons are very important and will remain important and much sought after in the future. Personal data need to be construed in a broad sense to include attributively used descriptions. And so these personal, like this data that can be personal really uh, has four moral reasons why we should protect it. So the first three uh, reasons can be shared by, uh, like I said, both liberals and communitarians, people who are liberal as in the sense of the rational atomized self, the individual, right? Uh, this is what they mean by liberal. It's by liberalism, classical political philosophy. You're not just liberals like uh, the way leftists might describe liberals or the way that right-wingers might describe liberals. No, we're talking about liberals as people who are really concerned with the atomized individual, the liberal citizen, right? Uh, these first three reasons can be shared by both liberals and communitarianism, uh, communitarians, not communists, not communitarianists, uh, but communitarians who are people who are concerned with the community, with the relational self. These first three reasons both involve, uh, both oppose inflicting harm, exploitation, and discrimination. So you have concerning, uh, involve avoiding harm, preventing exploitation and markets for personal data preventing inequality and discrimination. And then the fourth reason is really uh, about the contested liberal self. It's the liberal self that wants to decide what to think of itself and what to make of themselves and how others should identify them, preferably with what they identify with. So again, to go back over these, the first three reasons, concerning avoiding harm, preventing exploiting markets for personal data, preventing inequality and discrimination. This is probably most key to our concerns that we're going to get into later on and that we've talked a little bit about, uh, especially with marginalized people. Um, Helen Nissenbaum introduced the term contextual integrity to refer to those Walserian type constraints. According to Nissenbaum, the benchmark of privacy is contextual integrity. She distinguishes between the norms of appropriateness and the norms of flow or distribution. Contextual integrity is maintained when both types of norms are upheld and when it is violated when either of the norms are violated. So this last reason is really about like respect of persons has a distinctly epistemistic, epistemistic dimension. Um, 
I'm not going to get into that one. I'm going to I'm going to skip this. Uh, basically, those the main gist of the reading is to think about what are the moral reasonings we can have behind the protection of personal data. Why do we live in a society? We live in a society. I said it. Ah, okay. So, why do we live in a uh, culture um, that is so uh, subject and fraught with these questions and issues of privacy and security? And David Lyons has this, or Lyon, I keep wanting to say Lyons, uh, has this notion of the surveillance culture. And so that's what we're really focused on here. Uh, what are the ways that different um, parts of our culture, parts of our society have engendered or created these specific kinds of uh, informational flows and patterns that are really focused on acquiring user data on scooping up people's private information uh you know as the s reading goes through like what do we define as private what is uh, personal anymore but why do we live in a why do we live in a culture where that's an issue and so lion comes up with this idea of surveillance culture quote from his reading from an institutional aspect of modernity or a technologically enhanced mode of social discipline or controlled surveillance culture is now internalized and forms part of everyday reflections on how things are and the repertoire of everyday practices. I show that the presence of a surveillance culture raises fresh questions for everyday involvement with digital media, questions with ethical and political aspects that point to possibilities and challenges for digital citizenship. Both surveillance and citizenship are now mediated by the digital. You have any arguments to that? Um, really I, I don't i don't think i have any yeah i post questions for my undergrads but i don't have questions for you guys because i just look for responses to this and this is a good thing to respond to is whether or not surveillance culture is internalized how can we tell can we reflect on it and it is a is it a technology of the self the way that foucault writes about so uh some context on the surveillance culture uh lion uh contrasts it with the surveillance state uh, with surveillance society surveillance culture is informed by the third phase of computing uh, namely where computing machinery is embedded invisibly into the environments of everyday life so you have internet of things and smart stuff and ubiquitous computing and algorithmic searches and all this sort of stuff that goes on in the background it's a major industry uh you know surveillance culture is a huge profitable sector uh, Shoshana Zuboff writes about surveillance capitalism, uh, but you know there are critiques from Evgeny Morozov that I've mentioned before that if you want to go back into the further readings from, uh, is it last week or this week? I think it's this week. In the further readings, there is Shoshana Zuboff's work. Uh, but if you're going to read that, you should definitely read uh, Evgeny Morozov's uh, critique as well. So there's a culture of control and homeland security where surveillance is warranted for our own good. Uh, these kinds of imaginaries that we're going to get into in a minute. Social media and surveillance culture are intrinsically tied together, right? You cannot participate on social media without being surveilled. And that's one of the things that, you know, is impossible to get away from when you participate. Engagement, imaginaries, and practices. So subjects are involved not merely as the targets or bearers of surveillance, but more and more knowledgeable and active participants. We are not just, uh, you know, the way we would be in a surveillance state or in a disciplinary society, the way Foucault writes about. We're not just the subjects of surveillance, but we are involved in what some call surveillance, which is the participation, active surveillance of ourselves and each other. 
So there's widespread compliance. Surveillance has become so uh, pervasive that the majority comply without questioning it. Such compliance may be re explained by reference to other commonplace factors, familiarity, fear, and fun. That's interesting. Surveillance can be fun. So I'm wondering what you thought of that when uh, Lyon talked about um, the way surveillance can be fun for us to comply with. Two, uh, why such populations, uh, this is how we're involved in these kinds, how we're engaged in surveillance um, surveillance cultures. So why such populations might also participate in, actively engage with, and initiate surveillance. All right, then we go to the ethics, right? How to go on. Uh, there's transparency and visibility. And then one last ma major point. Uh, first of all, with transparency, you have this deeper question of visibility um, associated with recognition. It's struggles. It's pol uh, politics. Some disappear and are excluded. Others are made super visible. Most of the time, our experiences come somewhere between the two. Visibility makes identification possible and breeds a culture of identification. But nothing can be taken for granted. Visibility does not correlate automatically with recognition or oppression. And this kind of relates to our previous discussion about like participation, like where you have to participate in a society. You cannot really be on the outskirts of society and still assert power in it. Um, so, you know, visibility is another issue just like this. And, you know, I, I'd be interested. This is why. I hate lecturing on this recording because like I could prompt and go in down this rabbit hole and that would be a lot of fun. But to go on to invisibility, the attempt to control one's relative population within social space. Invisibility is, is active and does not predicate on withdrawal. It is engagement driven rather than defensive. Invisibility, this is in slash visibility is cognizant of the social conditions on which it depends and in which we exercise skills that include evaluating those conditions. It is also where the resources at our disposal for making ourselves more and less visible for strategic purposes. And then the last thing about ethics here. This is a quote from the reading. It is safe to say that one thing largely and regrettably is missing from any mainstream surveillance studies is any serious attention to ethics. Or it must be said to the analysis of the implicit ethics of different strands of surveillance culture. Starting there, the pregnant possibility—what oh, a word for a guy to use in a yeah—the pregnant possibilities of ethics, normative, contextual, disclosive, and relational, may be probed for fresh approaches that go beyond the technological determinist, the privacy preoccupied, or the complacent. In an era of apparently unbounded surveillance in which the appetite for more data seems insatiable and the types of linked data seem unending, there are vital questions awaiting imaginative and contextually relevant ethical responses. So this is where we come in. How do we kind of create an ethics of surveillance? Um, in the last section of this reading, Surveillance Culture and Beyond, we talk about how practices are, Lion talks about how practices are social and talks about... Um, this last section about a uh, recent study of digital citizenship. How do we conduct ourselves through the internet? Um, this is the question for us. So real discussion time, right? Uh, now that we've gone through the readings, uh, what are the prompts to really think through this stuff is how do we participate when we know we are being surveilled? When we know uh, that we don't have a choice to opt out in most circumstances, how do we uh, comply or become complicit with surveillance? Uh, what measures of privacy do we expect? 
how do we control the privacy that we don't have? Um, all of this stuff is worth thinking through. And so I hope in this reading, we've really kind of, uh, or in these readings, we've really thought through how do we morally provide a justification for protecting ourselves? And how can we protect ourselves when we're uh, sort of like in our last conversation, uh, compelled to participate? So those are the prompts that I really have for you. I don't, I don't like to go over 20 minutes, so I'm going to leave it there and uh, say I look forward to our discussion on Zoom on Thursday night. Uh, you guys have been great to show up. Uh, you know, if you're not showing up in Zoom, just make sure that you participate on the Slack, uh, offer some reading responses, and please comment and reply to other people's as well, especially if you're not on Zoom, uh, just so that you kind of get that engagement that we're missing out with uh, because of being um, quarantined, right? Yeah. All right. Apologies for this being late. Look forward to seeing you all on Thursday.